Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there, and welcome to today's program. Great to be back with you again after missing uh, last week. Um, got a few interesting topics for today. Of course, next week we have our educators panel, and then we will return to the great folks at Anytown High School to check in with them and see how they're doing with uh, the empathy step of Plan B, which is where we left them uh, last. Um, Today, going to take calls if there are any. There usually aren't on this program, but we'll see if we get any today. But a bunch of emails uh, is the norm uh, for this program, so I'm going to be answering some of them today, something we haven't had a chance to do uh, lately. But, uh, of course, as always, these are your 45 minutes. That's why Lives in the Balance sponsors uh, this program, to um, help people who work in education settings understand and help kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. And, um, boy, it can be a jungle out there. So if you're working with a student who's not responding very well to Plan B or running into trouble using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems or having difficulty getting your colleagues at school to buy in or having difficulty working with parents or seeing kids being treated in ways that you know aren't right and you want to turn things around but need some help doing it. This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. If you want to call in, once again, the call-in number is 646-727-2691. And if you're a little hesitant to call in, you can always send me a question electronically, as many people do, through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that's www.livesinthebalance.org. Well, let's turn our attention to some of the emails that I have received Um, from people who didn't necessarily call in but um, who wanted to get their questions answered. Um, Here's one that I found to be very interesting. I find them all to be interesting. But um, uh, Hi, guys. This may have already been discussed, but I'm curious how you view the challenges of implementing CPS at the same time as new anti-bullying laws are coming into play. I obviously realize we now have to maintain the idea of all the more reason to get the students quickly get to the students quickly to figure out what's getting in the way that's causing bullying behavior, but the new laws are causing my school to crack down on bullying behavior in a disciplinary way. Further, it's potentially increasing police and court involvement. 
this seems to create more of a challenge to effectively implement CPS. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks. You're welcome. And uh, what a great topic to raise. It's one that I um, previously talked about in one of the real-world segments on the Lives in the Balance website. Um, and uh, no need to go back to that now, but um, quite frankly, I'm not even positive that I remember what I said in that real-world segment. But um, one, one thing that we should probably say, um, it is good that we are taking bullying more seriously. That's a good thing. The problem is that um, many schools have been left to their own devices to decide what that looks like. And if they're wearing the wrong lenses, then they will simply respond to bullying the way they have always responded ineffectively to other social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. And as our emailer astutely points out, that's just causing people to crack down harder and deal with bullying as a disciplinary issue. When I, you know, I don't really care what we call it. We can call it a disciplinary issue if we want to. But if we're thinking that um, punishing bullies, losing sight of the fact that it takes two to tango, that's right, it takes two to tango, if we lose sight of the fact that bullies are lacking skills and that sometimes the bullied are lacking skills as well, if we lose sight of the fact that bullying behavior often occurs in response to unsolved problems, then it will make perfect sense to us to respond to whatever people mean by bullying. And of course the term itself is actually rather vague, but everybody's got a definition. We'll respond to bullying in a way that reflects our erroneous beliefs and a way that places a major emphasis on punishment. Bullies are lacking crucial skills. Many of them are in the social skills realm. The bullied are often lacking crucial skills. Many of those are in the social skills realm but others as well. Is the police and the courts, are they well-equipped to handle lagging skills and unsolved problems? And is it really, does it really make sense to add bullies to the list of things that the courts and police aren't likely to do a very good job of fixing? I mean, do we really want to make that list longer? I mean, already, the very vast majority of kids who end up involved with the police and the courts, that they have lagging skills and unsolved problems, that the police and the courts are ill-equipped to resolve. We're going to add bullies to the list. We're going to criminalize bullying. Um, not exactly sure what that would accomplish, so I feel your pain, emailer. Um, yes, that, well, does it create more of a challenge to effectively implement CPS? That part I'm not so sure about because um, the existing school discipline program represents a challenge to effectively implementing CPS, but 
the reality is the existing school discipline program and the fact that it's not working very well for the kids who access it the most, not only is that an impediment to implementing collaborative problem solving, it is the inducement to implement collaborative problem solving. It's why we're doing collaborative problem solving, because what we're doing now isn't working very well for the kids who access it the most. Do you have to crack down on bullying for people to take it seriously? No, you have to prioritize it, make a commitment to dealing with it, and intervene effectively to help people realize that we're taking bullying seriously. Since when did take it seriously and punishment become synonyms? I don't get it. I mean, yes, it's true. Uh, from a political perspective, perhaps punishment is the best way to show people that you're taking somebody seriously, but something seriously, but don't you want to fix it? How many kids have we lost because we've been trying to prove that we take disciplinary problems seriously, but done things only to prove that we take it seriously, but that had no hope whatsoever? of addressing their difficulties or fixing the problem. Aren't we done with that? But I guess our legislators who have compelled schools to take bullying seriously felt that the, the, their main role was to compel schools to do something about bullying but not to tell them how to do it. Now, you know what? politics being politics that actually might not be a bad thing but but that what that means is that it's been left in the hands of individual school systems to decide how to prove that they're taking seriously and well I'm being redundant here but I think that if a school system is um handling discipline poorly now it's likely to handle bullying poorly as well don't let the current school discipline program get you down, though. It's the whole rationale for why we want to be doing collaborative problem solving in the first place. It's not working. So impediment, yes. Inducement, indeed. Thanks for your email. Next email. I like this one. Um uh, I'm currently enrolled um, and I'm, I'm placed in two elementary schools. My supervisor is leading a book club with Lost at School that includes the principal guidance counselor and a handful of teachers and classroom aides. Um, the, the In the book club, the issue of developmental disability has been brought to the table. What about the children who are perceived to be too limited to be able to collaboratively problem solve? Um, well, there are some kids who, in terms of language processing, may feel like they're too limited to engage in collaborative problem solving. But I was speaking in uh, Centralia, Washington, last week to a uh, wonderful group of educators who had gathered from surrounding the school systems. And um, we had a lengthy discussion about... Um, kids who are lacking the language and communication skills to participate 
in Plan B? Well, that's how the question was phrased. What about the kids who don't have the language processing and communication skills to participate in Plan B? And, um, you know, I can't remember if I've used this reference on this program before. I know I've done it on the parents' program, but the reference point is infants. That's right, infants. And the question I raised for the group was, do we collaborate with infants? And the answer is yes. But before that question, do infants have legitimate concerns? Yes. Do infants let us know that they have concerns? Yes, but the way they let us know um, isn't terribly explicit since infants don't use words. Um, we've got to uh, try to figure it out. But infants do have legitimate concerns, and they do let us know that they have legitimate concerns, just in ways that are not very explicit. And now, so far, infants and kids with language processing and communication skill delays are no different from each other, so far. Do we collaborate with infants? We do. We... um try to enact solutions that we believe will address the concerns that we have tried to intuit are troubling them. Let me, let me just mention that intuition part. In a kid who has words, I'm always cautioning against ingenuity, adult ingenuity, adult intuition, because I'm always cautioning adults not to be geniuses because we are frequently wrong about kids' concerns when we try to be geniuses. But in kids who don't have the words to let us know what their concerns are, I'm willing to um, bend that rule a little bit. Yes, it's okay in kids who have significant communication skill delays and who are not going to be able to use their words to let you know what their concerns are. Yes, not such a terrible thing to um, intuit. And the kid's not growling all the time not grunting all the time, he's grunting and growling some of the time, not crying all the time, crying some of the time, not running out of the classroom, banging his head all of the time, running out of the classroom or banging his head some of the time. So we can figure out what those sometimes are, and we can try to intuit the kids' concerns, and then we can try to enact solutions but we'll have to pay very close attention to the feedback we receive from the child, the student, so that we can uh, see if our solution has worked. That's collaboration. Now, has there been an exchange of ideas? No. Has there been a lot of give and take about potential solutions and their likely outcomes? No. But are you collaborating? Yes. With infants as our reference point, can you do collaborative problem solving with a child who has significant linguistic delays? Yeah. Is it harder? Uh, I guess in some ways it's harder. Do you want to be trying to build in skills while you're doing this so that Ultimately, someday, 
the student may be able to participate in collaborative problem solving in uh, ways that don't involve so much leading the horse to water that I've just described. Yeah, it would be good to teach some skills, I wonder. Can we systematize the student's concerns that he's having difficulty expressing in words? Can we systematize it so that there's four or five common concerns that are coming up frequently? Something didn't go the way I thought it would. Somebody made me mad. Um, I don't know what to do. Can we systematize common concerns and organize them for the student in a way that actually sets the stage for them to start providing us with feedback about the general categories of their concerns? Yes. Can we use Google Images to portray those concerns in pictures so that early on all a student needs to do is point is the student receptively long, uh, strong enough, receptive language, to understand what it is that we're doing here? Often the answer is yes. Can we systematize unsolved problems in the same way? Five, six, seven common unsolved problems. Can we put those in pictures so that all the student needs to do is point. Can we, as the student is pointing, give the student the words that correspond to those pictures so that ultimately someday maybe the student will start using those words instead of the pictures? Yes. So I don't know what it means to be too lim I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it means to be too limited to participate in collaborative problem solving. I know what it means to have the lacking language and communication skills to participate in ways that you've seen portrayed in videos of collaborative problem solving being done, which by definition their videos, uh, depict people engaging in linguistic give and take. The big question is, can we creatively find ways to help the student participate despite the fact that he or she is lacking the skills to communicate in the way that we prefer words and the answer is yes, but we've got to be creative. We've got to be resourceful. We've got to take the kid where he's at. You know, another interesting question that came up while I was speaking in Centralia, Washington. By the way, what a beautiful state. Um... You West Coasters out there are lucky. You live in a beautiful part of the world. Cool. 
I'm just reading real quickly a uh, email from one of our listeners. A few weeks ago, there was a recorded encounter of a kid hauling off and hitting another kid who was bullying him. The bully said that the other kid had actually been bullying him. That cements the two-to-tango principle. And more importantly, how the necessary social skills are so desperately lagging. Yep, exactly. Thank you for your email. One of the other interesting questions that came up while I was speaking in Centralia, Washington, um, what do you do if you're in Plan B and you're in the empathy step and you think the kid is lying about his concerns? What do you do then? Um, You get the word lying out of your vocabulary. This was my answer. I mean, sometimes the question is posed in a somewhat different way. What, what, what do you do if you think if you're skeptical of the kids' concerns? If you think that they aren't accurate? Well, uh, as I've been saying a lot lately, that'll come out in the empathy step wash. Um, but you want to treat the kids' concerns respectfully at all times. The biggest mistake you can make in doing Plan B is to dismiss or uh, kids' concerns, or treat them as if they are not legitimate. No, you want to uh, you want to treat the kids' concerns as if they're legitimate, even if you're sitting there going, "I don't believe this," or "You got to be kidding me." No, you still want to drill for information. And you, if his concerns, first of all, there have been many instances uh, in which. Um, people who told me that a kid's concerns had no basis in reality whatsoever. And then when we began drilling for information, we found out that, in fact, the kid's concerns had a very real basis in reality. There have been many instances in which people said to me, I think he's lying, in which we found out that uh, he wasn't lying. Kids are entitled to their own perspective on reality. Um, We're not going to dismiss their perspective of reality. We're going to see if it shakes out when we're drilling for information in the empathy step. Sometimes kids tell us the first thing that pops into their head, and it's true. It was the first thing that popped into their head, and as we drill for information, we find that um, he needed to revise his concern a little bit because his initial stab at telling us what it was wasn't exactly spot on. That's not lying. That's not fabricating. That's not trying to play us. That's just first thing that came out of his mouth was not as well thought through as might have been ideal. I have the exact same experience with adults sometimes. We're going to treat the concern as if it's legitimate, and it either holds up when we're drilling for information, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't mean the kid was lying. It just means that it didn't hold up, and we made even greater progress toward understanding what the kid's concern or perspective truly was. Sometimes the kid's concern or perspective doesn't come out exactly right on his first go. Could be that he hadn't thought about his concern or perspective very much. Maybe he's 
so accustomed to plan A, he doesn't even think about his concern or perspective anymore. So this is asking him to think about something he hadn't given any thought to for a long time. That can happen. It'll come out in the empathy step wash, but, and I'm repeating myself here, but it's really important. Uh, we're never going to dismiss what the kid is telling us in the empathy step. We're just going to try to gather enough information so we can find out what's really going on. But I, I want to repeat myself one more time. I cannot tell you how often I've been told that the kid's concern was fabrication, um, a bunch of malarkey. And it turned out that there was quite a bit too what people were saying was fabrication or malarkey. Let's do another email. Dr. Green, sometimes it's hard to make a two-year-old understand the rules. But there are attitudes, and there are attitudes we cannot just allow. Uh, any suggestions for helping young kids with collaborative problem solving? Well, um, we do a lot of teaching to two-year-olds about things that... Um, lessons about right from wrong, but I've never been convinced that those lessons have to be taught through use of reward and punishment. You know, even infants can sense your facial expression when you're displeased. So apparently there's a lot more reading of social cues going on, I must say, my dog, who I love to death, knows when I'm not pleased, including last night when she swiped an entire stick of butter off of the kitchen counter and downed it. I was not pleased. My dog knew it. I didn't put her in time out. I didn't yell at her. I didn't punish her. I must say, I didn't do collaborative problem solving with her over that. Though, let there be no doubt, she would try to participate if she could. I don't know if a dog is a good example, but I think that... Um, Two-year-olds can sense that we are displeased. And here's the deal. Um, is it criminal to stick a two-year-old in timeout for something that they did that we didn't like? No, not criminal. Are there other ways to do it? Well, if putting the kid in timeout is simply us expressing to the child that we don't like what they did, I suggest that we might be able to do that without a timeout. If it's a chronic problem, so number one, important point number one, 
You can teach a two-year-old right from wrong without using a formal reward and punishment procedure. You don't have to go for the big guns when you're teaching kids basic lessons about right from wrong. They'll get the point. Now, life's about to get interesting. What if we've taught basic lessons about right from wrong, either with the big guns or not the big guns? Not the big guns would be simply telling or expressing displeasure in ways that dogs could understand. Um, Big guns, time out, other formal punishments. I think you don't need the big guns to teach basic lessons about right from wrong. But the truth is I think sometimes we apply the big guns unnecessarily, and sometimes it's an understatement. big question is if we are finding that we are pulling out the big guns frequently isn't that proof that the kid is lacking crucial cognitive skills and further proof that time out isn't teaching those skills and doesn't the kid have some unsolved problems that are setting in motion his challenging behavior and isn't it clear that Time out isn't solving those problems. Sharing, uh, waiting in line, waiting one's turn. These are skills. I hate to see us start early applying interventions that are overkill. Just because we thought that a kid who was younger couldn't get the point on a basic lesson about right from wrong. I hate to see it happen. Unnecessary. Unnecessary. We teach basic lessons about right and wrong to two-year-olds all the time without the big guns. truth is there's another forget formal rewards and punishments there's natural consequences that kick in as well and natural consequences are very powerful and very persuasive so just because a kid is two doesn't mean that we ought to be biased toward big guns just because we're assuming that the kid can't participate in formal collaborative problem solving yet doesn't mean we should turn our attention immediately to formal reward and punishment procedures. Amazingly, we don't really do that with infants. Why 12 to 18 months later is it suddenly a good idea well now you got one man's opinion it isn't one last question that came up in Centralia what a great group I had there the question of time 
where are we going to find the time to do this? Well, if, you know, there's a bunch of different answers. The first answer, as always, is collaborative problem-solving saves time. Now, the big the big transition point is while we're still doing the same thing and easing into collaborative problem solving, we're probably spending more time on discipline than we were when we were just doing the traditional discipline that wasn't working very well. So, yes, there is a time commitment, especially as we are shifting from what we are doing to what we'd like to be doing. There's no question about that. But ultimately, collaborative problem-solving saves time. But then the answer gets a little bit more interesting in terms of time. Are you the Lone Ranger, or are you doing this as an entire building? The folks who I was talking to in Centralia were taking what they were hearing back to their buildings. I'm actually going to have an interview with somebody a few weeks from now, a principal, uh, who did some great anti-gang work gang, I don't know, anti-gang, but gang work, G-A-N-G. For some reason, I don't feel like I'm pronouncing that well today. Gang, I guess the G is silent. Um, Did some great work with gangs in his school. Going to have him on the program in a few weeks. But he's the type of guy who's going to, well, he... um, They've made great headway on reducing discipline referrals in his high school. Uh, He's got a great assistant principal, too. I think I'm going to have her join the educators panel. But he's worried about, despite all the changes that they've made, he's worried about the kids who are still not being helped by the changes they've made, who are still dropping out. And so he's the type of guy who's going to implement this building-wide And when you implement this building wide, the fact that we don't have time to solve problems with kids anymore, often because we're so focused on what legislators have told us we should be focused on, doing well on high-stakes testing, isn't it a pity that classroom teachers and other people in the building are being given the message that a role that educators have always played in the lives of kids, vulnerable kids in particular, helping them solve problems is being so drastically de-emphasized and that a lot of that's coming from the top, telling us what we ought to be focused on and what we ought to let slide. We're going to be so obsessed with doing well on testing that we're going to slide on helping kids, especially vulnerable ones, solve problems. Thank goodness I was a student a long time ago. I'm glad my teachers had the freedom to help me solve problems. In any event, if you're doing this as the Lone Ranger, then you're finding the time to do this on your own. You know, you could carve out the time to do it, but you're on your own. But if you're taking this on as an entire building, then the fact that we don't have time to solve problems with students anymore becomes a building issue. How come we don't have time in this building to solve problems with our students anymore? How are we going to find that time? How are we going to provide each other with coverage? What do we need to do to our schedule 
to make sure that we have time to do what we feel is the right thing to do. Help students, especially challenging ones, solve problems. Otherwise, these kids are extraordinarily time-consuming. I can tell you one thing Lives in the Balance is doing. Lives in the Balance is sending care packages to um, people who need to know about collaborative problem-solving. There's a bunch of superintendents who have care packages on the way, superintendents in Texas, uh, funded by Lives in the Balance, because they're ticketing kids for behavior problems in those school systems, and those superintendents need to know about collaborative problem solving. So Lives in the Balance is on it. Say a state senator in Florida who has some interesting notions about how to get parents more involved in schools, misguided notions. She's getting a care shot. She already got a care package. Want to do more to um, advocate on behalf of challenging kids? and their parents and teachers and other caregivers. Uh, if you haven't been on the Lives in the Balance website lately, then you got to get on there and sign up for Action Plan B, the, our email newsletter. Sign the Bill of Rights. Send some care packages to people you know need to know about collaborative problem-solving. Lives in the Balance is here to get the job done. We need to make sure that as many people know why challenging kids are challenging and know what to do about it as possible. And there's more stuff coming down the pike. That's why you got to sign up for Action Plan B. It's um, the Lives in the Balance call to action, and it's going to give you your... Uh, options for getting involved and helping out. It's also going to ask you to let us know if there are things going on in your area, things that are being done to challenging kids that Lives in the Balance needs to know about. So Lives in the Balance can educate and advocate. That's what we're here for. One last check of the phone lines, and I'm seeing none, so I'm thinking I'm going to end the program a little bit early today. I want to uh, thank you for listening in. We've got tons of listeners these days, just never any callers in this program. Next week is the educators' panel. The week after, we'll return to Anytown High School, and probably the week after that. Um, thanks for your emails. Keep them coming. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you've found the program to be useful. And I'm looking, looking forward to getting back together with you again next week. Take care.